Beginning in verse number 1 of 1 John chapter 5, the Word of God says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight, Lord, that you'd use me tonight, not because of me, Lord, but in spite of me. God, that you'd do in the hearts of your people that which would bring you the most glory. Apply your word through the Holy Spirit to our lives, and we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I believe what we have before us in the ensemble of verses that we've read tonight is in some senses the peak, the epic of the book of First John. For you see, we think of the book of First John as being very much about uh, the warm, the inviting verses of Scripture in the book of First John. And let me say that I'm very thankful for all of those verses that speak of us having an advocate with the Father, speak of the fact that he, hey, we love Him because He first loved us and things of that sort. But the book of First John, at its very heart, is a book that is meant to expose and is meant uh, to condemn apostasy in its darkest form. The book of First John deals with heresy. Now, something you have to understand is that's not true as far as the overall context and the theme of every single New Testament book. Now, there are some books in the New Testament that do correct a lot of heresy. But First John, in a very unusual way, was written for the express purpose of correcting heresy with a little body of believers and concerning a group known as Gnostics that had departed from them. And as we've read through the book of First John, time and time and time again, God has, or John, well, God too, but through John, has basically set forth and defended two basic ideals. One of them is this, 
that there are two families in this world, the family of Satan and the family of God. And that we can know, this is the second thing, that we can know, uh, at least uh, in a relative sense, uh, by their life and by their testimony, we can have an idea of who is in either of those families. Now, First John is not meant to turn us into the profession police. It's not meant for us to go around everybody we meet and give them our stamp of approval one way or the other. That's not the idea. But the reality is this. As we live in this world, we will have to make decisions concerning what our opinion is about a person's relationship with God. Now, that's not popular. I'm aware of that. And I understand that if I was to proclaim that to the world, I I would get a resounding condemnation from them. They'd say, well, who are you? What business is it of yours? I don't answer to you. And that's very true. No one answers to me. But I do answer to God for the way that I live my life, the things that I allow my family to be around, the church that I am a part of, the decisions that I make. And in as much as we have that responsibility, it does press itself upon us to some degree or another uh, to guard ourselves against being taken in to the fellowship of those that do not know Christ or being taken into the ecclesiastical fellowship of those that do not know Christ. Now, what John has set forth in verses 1 through 7 is several proofs that a person knows God. Uh, we spent some time last week on uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 in a very uh, particular way and discussed the idea of the Trinity. The Trinity is a biblical, biblical doctrine. It is a biblically sound doctrine. I understand the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Word of God. I don't even say, you know, some preachers say a lot of times it's not found anywhere in the King James Bible. Uh, I'd just sooner say it's not found anywhere in the Word of God. Amen? Uh, because I think when we do that, we're sort of lending credence and lending uh, validation to those that believe that there's uh, uh, all of these other corrupt versions out there that can pass for the Word of God. If the word Trinity is not here, then it's not in the Word of God. But the doctrine of the Trinity is found all throughout the Word of God. We talked about some of the different ideals about the Trinity, and there's several different heresies concerning the Trinity. Sometimes they're given inadvertently, well-meaning people that believe right, but are trying to explain it, and explain it in a way that has dire theological consequences. And John has moved past that thought, and he begins to talk in, in depth concerning this witness. Something you'll find in this chapter of the Word of God, uh, that the word witness and the word record that are both used here are the same word. But they are used, and I say this to, to, just to brag on my King James Bible for a moment. There's a reason the translators translated them as different words. There's a very unique reason that the translators translated them as different words. Uh, when we think of a witness, we typically think of someone that is a living, breathing testifier, don't we? Uh, some of you maybe, uh, I hope not, but maybe you've had to be a witness in a, a court case or in a trial of some sort. Uh, and uh, if I was to look at you and say, are you a witness concerning a trial, what that would entail is the idea that you showed up at that trial, you spoke, you gave life and gave thought to the actions that you had observed, and you were there to give a testimony concerning that. But in the verses that we've read here tonight, we have a very uh, different word that is used in verse number 11 where the Bible says, and this is the record. Now, isn't it interesting that the word record is used there? Because when we think of the word record, we explicitly think of something that is written down. 
If you were to go into most businesses and say, can I see your records, they wouldn't bring uh, their, their accountant out and say, okay, tell you uh, their records. They wouldn't do that, would they? If you said, I want to see your records, you know what they'd do? They would uh, either print something out on a computer or they'd start to bring out the boxes and they would show you something that you could handle that would give you a written down testimony of what has transacted. Now, what John has spoken about concerning the witnesses that are within us, uh, and there's a lot of differing opinion about this and we can fuss and fight about it, I guess, if we got nothing better to do. But I'm of the personal belief that when it speaks about the Spirit and the water and the blood, it's speaking about the Holy Ghost, the Word of God, and the crucifixion, uh, the blood of Christ, the fellowship that we have with Him through that blood. But now he moves on to something very different. And I want to give you what I believe concerning it. And again, you can disagree with me if you wish. But notice what it says in verse number 9. It says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, that's a very simple and yet sound statement, isn't it? I mean, the implication of that is remarkable. You say, why is John saying that? The reason is because for this little group of believers, they were not receiving the witness of men. Now, let me say that in uh, this day that we live in, I'm thankful that there's a lot of like-minded brethren. I'm thankful there's folks we can fellowship with. And uh, If you live long enough around somebody, you ought, it ought to be that you live in such a way that they can tell you know the Lord and they can tell that you're saved. But for this little group of believers, they were being distinctly persecuted by another group of people that were saying that they did not know God, that they did not have salvation, that they had fallen short, that they had come up short of the grace of God, that they needed an extra scriptural revelation. And what John is saying here is this, no matter what they say, what does your relationship with God say about your salvation testimony? There's a lot of things that can be shaken. And I, you know, I said just a moment ago, John didn't write this so we could become the profession police. Uh, But concerning our own testimony, our own witness, can I say to you that at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand before anybody, I'm going to stand before God. And I can have the witness of everyone around me. And here's the sad reality in a lot of churches. And I think this is what's wrong with a lot of churches today is there's lots of folks that have the witness of men, but they don't have the witness of God. People that have professions, but they don't have possession. Uh, people that have filled out a little card, uh, but God's never filled their heart. Or people that have gone to an altar, but they've never been to Calvary. You know what I'm saying tonight. Lots of folks that have the witness of men. But the witness of God is absent from their life. At the end of the day, it's about our relationship with God. This is explicitly what John is trying to get them to understand, is that at the end of the day, it does not matter what anyone else says about you. The question is, what does God say about whether you've been saved or not? I'm all for the Romans road. I'm all for confrontational soul winning. I'm all for taking a Bible and showing someone how to be saved. But there is a danger within that. And I don't believe that we need to do away with those things. I believe it's scriptural to do all of those things. But we need to understand that there is a danger within it that we tell people that they're saved whom God has never told them that. Now, I'm not saying we do away with it. I mean, it's scriptural to take a Bible and show someone how to be saved. It's sure a lot better to take a Bible and show them than just to give them your words or your opinion or this, that, or the other. I'm not, I'm not in any way criticizing that. That's scriptural. We need to do that. But we need to be extra careful because the sheer reality is you can walk just about anybody through a prayer and them never having had a salvation experience with God. Now, I, I, you know, I understand, too, I, I don't hold workers accountable for things like that. 
we do our church camp, and I would promise you, if, if we knew the record of heaven, there's probably been kids come through our church camp that have professed to have been saved that didn't genuinely get saved. There's probably also been kids that nobody ever dealt with that did get saved, and only heaven will bear that truth. So I'm not casting any slight upon workers. I'm merely saying that we need to be very careful and vigilant about the way in which we deal with people. And concerning our own spiritual state, we need to understand that just because a preacher said you're saved, just because somebody dunked you in some water, just because a church opened their doors and let you join, just because you're a good soul, just because you're a moral person, just because you dump soup at a soup kitchen, no matter what these things are, to which man may pat you on the back and say, good job, surely you'll make it. The question is really, what does your relationship with God say about your eternal destination? The witness of God is greater. Notice what it says, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his son. Here we have a very interesting bridge between the witness that's spoken of in verses 6, 7, and 8 and the record that is going to be spoken of in verse 10 and verse 11 and verse number 12. Because we must understand that the witness that we have within ourselves is a direct result of us having believed the witness that God gave of his son. I think it's abundantly clear that God testified that his son was his son. In fact, three times in the Word of God, there's a voice thundering from heaven and declaring that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And lest there be any dispute about it, there upon the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah met and discussed the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, uh, Peter said, let's build three tabernacles here. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice thundered from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. So there's no question that the Word of God bears witness to the truth of the Son of God. And I believe when it uses the word record here, that's what it's pointing to. Now again, put yourself in the mind frame of these believers that are uh, reading this letter. Now we live in a day where we are almost 2,000 years separated from the close of Scripture. But at this time, Scripture had not yet been closed. God was giving inspired Scripture through John. And so when John makes these statements, when he says in verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, I believe when he uses that word record, he's speaking of the Word of God. Can I say that it is absolutely unequivocally substantiated that the Word of God sets Jesus Christ forth as being the very Son of God? There is no dispute about that. Now, uh, if there's some that want to uh, chop sections out of the Word of God, and I suppose if you're willing, like any heretic, to chop portions of your Bible away, then you can represent Jesus Christ any way that you wish to. But if you honestly and earnestly read through the gospel accounts, it is undisputable time and time and time again. Uh, it's spoken of that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is God's testimony of Him. Not just that he's a good man, not just that he's a moral teacher, but that he is his very son. What impact does this have upon you and I? Look at verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Again, why did John write this? Now, you must remember, in the day that we live in, we see heaven as very much a package deal. And that's because of the dispensation that we live in. I don't mean that critically. I believe we should view it that way. 
We understand, most of us do, when, I, I, well, anybody that got born again understands this fact, that when you came to Christ, you were coming for several things. You were coming for forgiveness. You were coming for entrance to heaven. You were coming for a relationship with His Son. You were coming for someone to govern your life or to guide you in some way. And that's very much how we perceive things. But in John's day, it would have not necessarily been perceived this way. Here they knew of the Son of God. They knew of Jesus Christ. They believed He was the Son of God. But now there's this question in their minds because of what some have said as to whether or not this will guarantee eternal life for them. And John begins by saying, if you've believed on the Son of God, then God has placed His witness within you. Now again, I, uh, we, we could argue about it, but I believe that refers to the Spirit of God. And let me say that the Bible says very, very clearly, in fact, we read it just the other night in Bible study in Romans chapter 8, uh, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Everybody that's been born again is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There is no gap whatsoever. There was a time dispensationally, I'm aware of that in the book of Acts, when there were some that had believed on Jesus Christ and had not yet received the Holy Spirit. But in the day that we live in, every single person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ is instantaneously, immediately, and perpetually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The witness is within those. Now, why was this a comfort to these believers? Not simply because they had believed on the Son of God, but because they did have the witness within themselves. John is saying one of the greatest proofs that you have been saved is that God has sent forth the Spirit of His dear Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has indwelt you with His Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and said that he's the earnest of our redemption until the purchase or the redemption of the purchased thing. Uh, He is the earnest money. He is the down payment. He is the guarantee of the promise of God that you and I would be conformed to the image of his dear son. The Spirit of God is that very thing that Paul was talking about when he says, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Uh, God saved Paul so that he could be conformed to the image of his dear son. Paul says, I'm aware of that. The Spirit of God is within me, and I'm seeking to submit myself to the rule of the Spirit of God so that I can apprehend, so that I can achieve to some degree that purpose for which God has saved me. That is the witness, the Spirit of God that indwells us. The Word of God is it's engrafted within us. We spoke last week in, uh, uh, on Wednesday night about the engrafted Word. Something very unique takes place when a person is born again. The Bible says we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And God places his word within us. And I believe what's meant by that is not uh, meaning that we instantaneously, by some sort of supernatural osmosis, uh, automatically have every passage memorized. I mean, I can tell you right now, that's not true. Amen. Every passage memorized and every truth, uh, we've got a grappled hold upon it. But what it's saying is this, uh, that the Word of God, what was once a dead book to us, is now living within us and has the capacity uh, to affect us, to speak to us, to respond to us, and us to respond to it. That's a good proof that you've been born again. What does the Word of God do to you? Does it convict you? Does it move you? Does it speak to you? Now, I confess to you, there's times I open this book and it's just black ink on white pages. I go through dry spells like any believer does, but let me say this too, that the Word of God, to a greater or to a lesser degree, when God is applying it to my heart, always has the ability to speak to me, to convict me, and to give clarity to me. 
The Word of God is one of the witnesses. And, of course, that fellowship, that blood. Uh, John has already said that we have fellowship with Him through the blood of His Son. That fellowship that we have with God, that communion with Him, is that witness. God has placed them within us. Look at the next phrase. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar. Now, it's, it's very interesting the way that's phrased. It doesn't say, he that believeth not is a liar. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar. Now, why does it say this? Uh, it's interesting that it's not speaking, I believe, explicitly about those that have never heard. Now, those that have never heard, I don't believe that they go to heaven, uh, you know, on a gimme. I believe there's uh, none other name other than Jesus Christ, whereby you must be saved. But I believe what he's saying, because the people that he's writing, condemning, have heard the truth. They've heard the truth of Jesus Christ. They've heard the witness uh, of uh, his word. And they have turned away and they have rejected him. And in a very unique way, they have an accountability to God for their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Christ said concerning uh, several cities uh, there in Israel? He condemned them and said, it's going to be worse on you in the day of judgment than it was on Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had had this same witness for them, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And in the very same way, can I say that hell's going to be a lot hotter for those that have heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have spurned it and scorned it and rejected it than it will be for those that have died in ignorance. Some say, well, I don't believe that, you know, that, that there's varying degrees of punishment. Well, the Word of God tells us that there is. Some be beaten with many stripes, some be beaten with few stripes. There's no question that our accountability uh, is measured by the uh, amount of light that is given to us. You say, preacher, why is all this important? Because we live in a world, we live in a society today. I won't say a world. There's places of this world that are uh, still darkened uh, by the, the black night of paganism, and I'm aware of that. But in America, in the place that we live, and particularly where we live, I mean, we don't just live in the Bible Belt. We practically live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. We need to understand that there's a greater accountability for those that turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, having been given all the light and all the truth that God has given them. It's hard for us to fathom, and anybody that's ever lived anywhere else, most of you could testify to this. I, I've grown up in Knoxville, Tennessee. I mean, I get nervous when, when I, you know, go like south of Sweetwater. I start getting a little nervous. I'm not a traveler, you know. Uh, but uh, here, there's a church on every corner. Isn't that true? I mean, you could just about throw a rock and hit a church, any kind of church that you wanted to. Knoxville's going to have a lot to answer for one of these days. Because the preached word has gone through Knoxville, Tennessee in a very unusual way that the rest of this country, much of the rest of this country has not been privy to and privileged to. There's a greater accountability for those. It says, why? Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. They've rejected the truth of the word of God. And we need to understand that that is the category of those that have never accepted Christ. Now, not so that we become mean and hardened, not so that we become pious and prideful, not so that we might look to ourselves and say, oh, what a fine bunch we are because we've been saved, but so that we might with pity look at those that the world would have us embrace through ecumenicalism. Now, understand that uh, a man's denominational ties are not going to have a huge weight on where he's going to go when he dies, but what he believes about Jesus Christ is going to decide where he goes when he dies. 
So I'm not talking about condemning every single other church that doesn't cross every T or dot every I just exactly the way we do. But understand that there's many out here that the world would look at us and say, oh, they're pretty close to you, they're all right. We need to understand that if they've rejected Christ, then they're on their way to hell, and they need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they've not believed the record that God gave of His Son, because they've rejected the Word of God. I would say most everybody is somewhat familiar. The, the actor died yesterday. And, it's, you know, it's interesting to watch people's response to the death of somebody like that. Because you have on one side people that, that you know, act like the world has lost the, the greatest person ever. And I don't think that's a fair thing to say. And then you've got some that almost take a joy and a self-righteous jubilation in the death of somebody that we'd consider as being worldly or being Hollywood in their lifestyle. When the truth of the matter is, that man died, and if, what, if by his testimony, if, if believing what he claimed to believe, he died and went to hell. What a tragedy. But a man that did in some degree uh, bring, uh, if not joy, at least laughter to a lot of people, that put a lot of smiles on people's faces, would be so miserable and so depressed that he'd take his own life let me tell you something, friend. We need to really get serious about reaching people because this whole world is in a mess and in a bad way. I don't rejoice in that man's death. It breaks my heart for another person to die without Christ, not because he won't make another movie, not because he won't do another stand-up act, but because if, if he believed what he said he believed, and if he didn't in his moments before he took his life make some sort of peace with God through Jesus Christ, then he is tonight in hell, and that's a heartbreaking and heart-rendering and tragic thing. And we ought not rejoice in it. It ought to give us a burden to try to reach people. It ought to make us understand that though the world would look at someone like that and say, Oh, what a good person! He seemed to make so many happy and so many laugh. Based on what he claimed to believe about Jesus Christ, doesn't matter how many people he made laugh, doesn't matter how many movies he made, doesn't matter how successful it was, and evidently by his own testimony, by the way that he left this world, all that wasn't enough for him either. He had a hole in his life and in his heart and a sorrow in his existence. Why? Why? Not because he lived in Hollywood, California. Not because he appeared on a TV screen. But because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. We need to understand the impact of that statement. You see, it all centers and hovers around the person of Jesus Christ. He is the most important. That's not to say there aren't other things that are important. I'm a firm believer that, that we don't need to make anything the main thing except the main thing. But I'm also a firm believer we don't need to disregard everything other than the main thing because we've got the main thing. Do you understand what I mean tonight? There's some that want to... Uh, get some little pet doctrine and beat it like a war drum. And I think we ought to stay focused on the cross of Christ and Him crucified. But then there's others that want to preach the gospel and then nothing else and treat everything else like it's not important. We need to understand that this whole book is the whole counsel of God. We're commanded to preach it. We're commanded to read it. We're commanded to obey it. But we also need to understand that at the end of the day, it all centers around the person of Jesus Christ. What does a person believe about Jesus Christ? That's the question. You may have loved ones that go to church somewhere, but what do they believe about Christ? You may have loved ones that are good people, but what do they believe about Jesus Christ? That's the key question, because look what it says in verse number 12. He that hath the Son hath life. 
And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It boils down to this one simple truth. What have you done with Jesus Christ? We're told again about this witness in verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The book of Colossians chapter number 3 and verse 1 says, Set your affection uh, on uh, heaven, on things above, uh, on the right hand of God. It says that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. No one knows eternal life except through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They don't know it through a church system. They don't know it through a sacrament or through a religious ceremony but only through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's this sentiment that, this, this sentiment that verse number 12 is trying to echo to us. Uh, the question then would be this for you and I. And I don't say this to make anybody doubt, but if there's anybody that's not truly born again, I'd rather make you doubt than make you comfortable. Amen? Amen. The question is, do you have Jesus Christ? Do you have Jesus Christ? Well, preacher, what does that mean? Well, number one, it, believe, it means that you believe the record that God gave to us of His Son. You believe what the Word of God says about Him. Now, let me say again, that doesn't mean that you believe everything. Now, listen carefully. Y'all are going to carry me out on a poll for this. Listen carefully, though. That doesn't mean you understand everything about Him. That doesn't mean you know everything about Him. If we try to make every statement that God made about His Son, Jesus Christ, as being a prerequisite of salvation, then there's none of us that could have ever been saved because nobody knows everything there is to know about Him. But if you believe the record that God gave of His Son, that He is the Son of God, that He's perfect and righteous, that He died on Calvary for your sins and mine, that He rose in power and glory the third day, and that He has the capacity, not what He did has the capacity, but that He has the capacity to save you. Big difference there, friend. Lots of folks acknowledge the historical accuracy of the Bible concerning Calvary, but they've never called on Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. And if you believe those things, that's the number one. Have you ever believed those things? Not in an academic sense only, but in a dependency sense. Trusted in those to get you to heaven. That's the key. If you've done that, what does it say in verse number 10? He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. If you've done that, that's all that God requires of you. Now, there's some that want to argue about repentance, and you say, Preacher, what do you believe about repentance? I believe it's biblical. I believe it's necessary for salvation. I also believe it's not an action, but an attitude of the heart. Just as faith is not an action, but is an attitude of the heart. And uh, if we uh, believe God, uh, then we're going to repent. And if we're repenting, it's because we've believed God. If we're coming to Christ, it's because we've ceased to depend upon ourselves. No man comes to Jesus Christ for salvation except he's come to the understanding and realization that he can't save himself and he can't depend upon what he's done and how he's lived. Uh, the sinner coming to Christ is characterized by our complete lack of dependency upon ourselves. That's why many won't be saved is because they refuse to repent. They want salvation, but they don't want to admit that they need salvation. They want a Savior, but they don't want to admit that they're a sinner. And you can't be saved without admitting you're a sinner, because if you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. So I understand that these things are implied, and other places they're explicitly declared. But if we boil it down to one simple statement, the statement would be this, have you ever put your faith in the Son of God to redeem you and save you from your sins? If you've never done that, then you've never been saved. 
If you have done that, then despite what all of the world might say about your belief system, uh, you've been saved if you've truly, honestly, earnestly done that. It comes down to that simple truth. Verse 13, in some ways, summarizes the whole book of 1 John because he says these things. What things? I think in a very strict context, he's speaking of the last few verses. But I think in a uh, more broad context, he's speaking of the entire book of 1 John. And he's saying, all these things that I've written unto you, he says, I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let me say that every single word of the Word of God is precious and perfect and is needful in our lives. But if we were to attribute some sort of ranking or some sort of emphasis, then I would most adamantly say that this verse is one of the most important verses in the Word of God. Because there are many out there today that propose you cannot know whether you're saved or not. There's many out there that propose that it's just a a hopeful thing. And there's a big difference between hope and hopeful, by the way. Uh, You see, hope in the Word of God is not an uncertain thing. We use the word hope today, and it's very uncertain. We might say, well, so-and-so going to be here? And we say, well, I hope so. And by using that terminology, we're implying that we have an uncertainty or a doubt concerning it. Uh, But hope used in the Word of God is not an uncertain thing. And so as we hope for that which we have not seen, as we believe in what God said about His Son, as we put our faith in what He has testified, we can know for sure, based upon the promises of God, that we're saved. Now, let me say that it all comes down to this record. There are days I don't feel saved. I know nobody likes to hear the pastor say that. Or actually, the people that have never struggled with their salvation don't like to hear their pastor say that. But it's a great comfort to those that have struggled with it. Sure, there's days I don't feel saved. There's days I get up and I don't feel a spiritual thing about me. But it's not dependent upon my feelings. It's dependent upon the promises of God. It's dependent upon this record, what He's told me. You see, faith gets us to Christ, but faith doesn't save us. Faith gets us to Christ. Christ saves us. We've placed our faith in Him, and He's saved us, and He keeps us by His power. We don't keep Him. He keeps us. And so it is possible to know. Anyone that tells you it's not possible to know, all you can uh, discern from their statement is that they don't know. That's the only thing you can discern. Because it is possible to know whether we're saved, not based upon our feelings, not based upon the stamp of approval from mankind, but by the witness of God, the testimony that He's given us, both within us and on paper, that He has made a promise to you and I that if we place our faith in Him, He'd save us. Notice the next verse. Verse 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Let me say that that word confidence in a very unusual way is completely divorced from the idea of feelings. The whole reason we need confidence is for times that we don't feel things are going well or going right. You see, when we think of the idea of confidence, we think of the word trust. If someone was to say, I have a lot of confidence in you, what they're saying is, I know that no matter what happens, you are going to do the right thing. And let me say that the Word of God gives us a shining truth here by using the word confidence, that there's times that we don't feel like He hears us. 
There's times that we don't feel very saved or sanctified. There's times and there's been days I've gotten up and I don't know, I, I need to throw away the, the wrong side of my bed because I just seem to roll out on it a lot of times. And you get up on the wrong side of the bed and nothing's hitting right and you open your Bible and it, it just looks like words on a page and you try to pray and it feels like you've got a mile of concrete above you and it just feels as though everything has gone dead like a phone line that's been cut. But understand that no matter how we feel, we still have this confidence. You see, that confidence is not something that is given from one person to another, but it's earned from the person in whom you're putting your confidence in. Much like respect, it's not something you can command or demand. It has to be earned. And God has earned this confidence for us. There's been plenty of times I've cried out to God, and there's no reason He could... He should hear me. I was talking to Brother Nick just the other day after Bible study on Monday night. And, you know, I said there's a lot of times that God uses me in spite of me. And he made the statement. He said, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, I know. You know, I knew you when you were younger. And he said, you know, I, I know there, that, that that has to be God. And I said, no, no, no. What I mean is this. I mean, there's times when there is no reason that God should use me. There's times when... Something I've done or just my general attitude or the, the spirit that I've carried in myself. There's no reason that God should use me, but He does at times. Now, I'm not immune to God shelving me. I'm not trying to imply that I am. But I'm merely saying that any time God uses me, I'm not worthy of Him using me. But there is especially times when He uses me, and this is probably true of you, times when He uses you, that He's having to use you in spite of you. He's earned that confidence that no matter what we've done, no matter how we feel, He'll still remain faithful and remain true. This is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Now, it's important that it says according to His will. And by the way, we've really taken prayer and, and there's been a lot of paganizing of prayer in Christianity today. And let me tell you what I mean by that. We have taken scriptural truths and tried to embody them in incantations and having them completely divorced from the scriptural truth that was taught by them. Let me give you an example. I've heard people say before, well, uh, you know, I, I've heard someone pray, and they prayed and prayed, and they came to the end of it, and they said, Amen. They didn't say, In Christ's name, Amen. And I've heard people make the statement, and you may believe this way, I hope I can fix that before we leave, but... I've heard people say, well, the Lord won't answer that because they didn't say in Christ's name. In Christ's name is not open sesame or abracadabra. But what the phrasing in Christ's name means is means for His glory, for His wishes, for His desires, for His benefit. Now, I, I just about every time that I pray, I'll try to say in Christ's name. I'm not, I'm not griping or, or fussing at anybody over using it. But there's a lot of folks that pray things that aren't in Christ's name, but they say they're in Christ's name. And there's a lot of times that we'll pray things directly opposed to the will of God. And then we'll say things like, well, Lord, if it be thy will, when we know that what we're praying is not the will of God by the very nature of what it is. When we're praying for things that are selfish or prideful, and not everything that we pray for that benefits us is selfish. I'm not implying that. But times when we know that we're praying a covetous prayer or a vindictive prayer or we're praying a lazy prayer, we're asking God for uh, asking God to move something that He's commanded us to climb over. 
We know that God's not going to answer that, but we say, well, according to His will, or Lord, if it be Your will, or Lord, if You can find it in Your will to do this. These are not magic words, but they embody the truth that we are totally surrendered to and seeking of God's will in a matter. Are we truly surrendered, whatever God's will is, that we're willing to do it? If we are, and if we pray things according to His will, seeking His will, desiring His will, the Bible says He heareth us. Verse 15 says, and if we know that He hear us, and if we're seeking things according to His will, we know that He heareth us. Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. That word petition is very interesting, and I want to say a quick word about it, and then we'll be done. But when you think of the idea of a petition... You typically don't think of the wishes of one person, do you? I've seen just the other day on, uh, on the computer where, and I don't even know, you know, half the stuff. Uh, one good way to know if something is false is if it, if it pops up on the Internet. Amen. Because usually, but, but from what they tell me, and probably someone will come up to me afterwards and say, yeah, preacher, that's true or that's not true. Uh, but they're wanting to release or give probation to, to one of these uh, infidels that murdered those kids. And uh, all, they're, they're floating around on Facebook, this petition. And the very nature of a petition is the idea of influence through numbers. If I can get enough people to sign this, then it shows a majority mindset about something. And it's interesting that God would use that word petition there, isn't it? You know why? Because if we've asked for something according to His will, then we have the only signature that matters. It may be that the whole world stands against us. But if His name's on our prayer, truly on our prayer, not just with a little abracadabra phrase, but truly on our prayer, we have the signature that matters. It may take moving heaven and earth, but if we have His name on our prayer, then we have the wishes of the One that created heaven and earth. You see, if we ask anything according to His will, because we're a son, because we're a child of His, because we know the Son of God, and He's there to make intercession for us. If He signs that prayer, if He gives His wishes to that prayer, or if it is within His wishes, I guess is something we should say, then we know that God will honor that. If I could put it with one simple phrase, and I'm done. God by Himself is a majority. So God plus anything is certainly still a majority. If you're seeking the will of God, then you're seeking something that God Himself endorses and wishes and desires. You're seeking something that the armies of hell could not thwart or overthrow. You know what that does for me? I don't know what it does for you, but it gives me a lot of confidence that if I'll ask anything according to His will, He'll hear it and answer.